Hello everyone, welcome to another weekly episode of Limitless Podcast, a place where we bring together global leaders in sales and marketing. My name is Sanjana and I'm the host of Limitless Podcast. Today's episode is a webinar replay from our Limitless webinar series. We hosted Tibur Shanto on our webinar to talk about why and how telephone prospecting is coming back to life. So in this episode, Tibur will be t- talking about understanding prospecting dynamics, how to properly communicate value in a tense moment, why you want to leave your product in the car and dealing with the most common objections in sales. So let's hear it from Tibor Shanto. So Tibor Shanto is the principal at Renbor Sales Solutions. He is also the co-author of the award-winning book called Shift. And he is the voted as the top 30 salespeople in the world by Forbes. And Reuters uh, has voted him as the 50 sales experts and influencers you should be following in 2019. And he is voted as the top 50 most influential people in sales lead management. Uh, so that's it from my side. Uh, over to you, Tibor. Okay, well, glad to be here. I do have one small correction to make that it wasn't yeah. Forbes that did that ranking. Okay. It was a study that was presented on Forbes.com. So, oh, okay. you know, just to be accurate, because that's a good thing to be when you're in sales. Exactly. But glad to be here. What do you want to talk about? Yes, so I've got like 20 to 25 questions with me that I want to, you know, ask you. Let me start with the first question. First question is, how do you perfect an elevator pitch? Uh, Are there any tips or examples? Yeah, I think the way you perfect it is you ditch it. I don't think the elevator pitch has any value in sales in 2019. Mm -hmm. If you think about the concept of an elevator pitch, it implies that you have somebody who is a target, whether they're an executive or somebody in the middle of the pack, but somebody that you think is going to be a buyer. And just think about it. The elevator pitch is that they're trapped hostage in this elevator with no opportunity to escape the barrage of words that's about to come at them from a salesperson. So I think elevator pitch is something that should be ditched. As same thing with unique selling proposition, because again, all I'm telling that poor prospect is why I'm different than the other company but not why it would make sense for him or her to buy from me. So I think that those two concepts have had their day and they should go by the way of sales 2.0. Okay, cool. Uh, uh, The next question is, do you have a ballpark number of calls reps should strive to make per week? So I do, but that's because I arrived at it. I have a tool and people can reach out to me. It's a web tool called the Activity Calculator. And what it does is it takes your specific numbers, so your quota, your average deal size, things along that way, plus your own specific numbers in terms of conversion rates from lead to prospect, prospect to opportunity, opportunity to close. So I know what my numbers are because, again, over the years I've tracked them and and, and, and have had an understanding of how they fluctuate with the market. Um, What's sad is that a lot of salespeople don't know. When I ask them, you know, I'll ask salespeople, who their favorite ball player is, and I'll ask them, you know, what their batting average is, and they'll know. But when I ask them what their own batting average is, they don't know. So I think that there isn't, and, and my, my focus has always been that there isn't an ideal number. There's your number, and there's what you could do to improve it. And I think what salespeople can do is own their own number. So instead of comparing to somebody else, mm-hmm. how do I get better every day? Because again, next year, you're going to have to start all over, but this time your quota is going to be higher, so you have to get better. So I think the best thing to do is to start off with a general number. So if somebody comes to work for me, 
I generally tell them, go out and get 10 appointments every week. And then after a couple of weeks, we can see what effort it took to get those appointments. And by that time, some of those appointments should be beginning to move through the pipeline. So we will be able to measure it through that. So to answer your question, I think I can answer what mine is. I think the effort and the reward is in people actually figuring out what their own is. Now, my next question is, how do you think outside reps can best use outside prospecting to aid their phone prospecting and vice versa? Well, I mean, I think they're out there, so they're seeing things. I don't think a day goes by when, you know, I keep a, a pad on my passenger seat in my car. There's a day it doesn't go by where I don't see something new in terms of a building that I didn't notice. I'm sure it was there before. I just didn't notice it. Or a truck will pass me and I'll go, hmm, that looks interesting and so on. So I think as you're outside, you can just visually take in your environment. I think the other is to let everybody know that you're in the business of sales and that you're looking for customers. So don't be shy about asking for referrals. And I think salespeople always think they have to wait for referrals until, you know, six, seven years after the deal is done. You know, if people want to go out and still one of the better sales books is Joe Girard's sales book, you know, the great car salesman. And he was infamous for giving people cards everywhere. So now it's not cards, it's social media. But, you know, if you're out there, let people know you're looking for customers. They're talking to other people. Everybody you talk to has a customer and has a supplier. So that's two possibilities. So I think, again, the word is being proactive instead of waiting for it to come to you. At least go meet it halfway, if not more. Next question. How can I get through a gatekeeper? Well, you can get through by changing your attitude. So I think, again, you know, labels mean a lot, right? So... I recommend that everybody go out and, and find Stu Hennigan and get his two books. One in particular is get a meeting with anyone. And Stu has a great little formula. He has gotten rid of the phrase gatekeeper, and he now looks at them as being VPs of access. And when you have a VP of access, you talk to them entirely differently than when you look at somebody who's a gatekeeper. So okay. I, don't, I think it's the wrong question to ask what you can you do to get past them? I think the question to ask is, what can I do to get engagement? Cool, fine. So speaking of, you know, VPs, how mm -hmm. to pitch to a C-suite? I guess in whatever language they speak locally. Um, you know, they're people, you know, so I think you talk to them in that way. I think the differentiation, if I understand the question, is, you know, if you look at sort of the hierarchy of an organization, you've got the frontline soldiers, which are the salespeople like you and me. You've got the managers, you've got the VPs, and then you've got the C-suite, right? So each of those assumes that the layer before them is managing that part of the business that's been delegated to them. So, you know, a salesperson is going to do what they're being told to do by their manager, and the manager is going to assume that they're going to go out there. So I think that the thing you need to change when it comes to speaking to the C-suite is to talk to them about issues that they would be interested in. So what most salespeople make the mistake of is talking about a product that they want to sell now in their current cycle. Well, the C-suite has outsourced the now, they delegated it to middle management and below. So what they're thinking about is next year. Most VPs that I'm talking to are past their planning for 2020, are well into their execution of their plan for 2020, and in about June, we're going to start talking about what they're doing in 2021. So if you want to talk right to the C-suite, then align your timeline with the timeline that they're thinking about. Because they're not thinking about products and specs and all the crap that we think about. 
they're thinking about the business elements. So this thing we touched on earlier about speaking their local language, I was only being half facetious. You know, the local language changes from different quarters of the building. And, you know, if you want to look at a simple example, if you talk to managers, they talk about sales and deals. And if you talk to VPs, they talk about revenues. Same thing, but it's just the way they look at it. So the way you sell to a C-suite is to speak their language. Yeah, so the next question is about cold calling. So at yeah. what point should I stop cold calling? When you die. <laughs> okay. How and you're in the right place because it's real cold there from what I hear, unless you're a bad salesperson and going to hell. But anyway, that's when you should stop. Got it. And how frequently should I call? More frequently than most people are comfortable with. I mean, you know, let me ask you a question. Where you are, it's Wednesday night, right? Mm -hmm. Tell me who called you Monday morning. Uh, I don't remember. <laughs> there you go. So how do you expect the prospect to remember because they don't even know you, right? Okay. So, you know, I know my mother must have called me on Monday at one point, you know, but that's about the only thing I remember. So, yeah. you know, I think there is a fine line between harassment and persistence, and I'm big on persistence. Okay. And I think the way that you avoid harassment is consider what the message is, and, and most of our message gets communicated non-verbally. So I could say all the nice, sweet things I want on the phone. But if my attitude is, where the F is this guy and how come he's not answering my call, then that's what's going to come across. So I think, again, it's the way that you speak, the attitude and so on. Um, but in terms of when do you stop cold calling, I think when you want to lose your job as a salesperson. <laughs> Got it. And then my next question is how to follow up with the prospects without annoying them. Oh, that's the big one. After I answer this, we're done. Um, I think, as I said a moment ago, it's a fine line, right? And I think one of the ways to sort of balance it out that you don't come across as being this too irritating person is to go across various modes of communication. So most salespeople default to the one that they're comfortable with. And for me, that's always the telephone. But I know that the people I'm speaking to are not the same as me. Like, imagine that they're different. Yeah. So you have to really go across the spectrum from telephone to social, to LinkedIn, to, and within social, you have to select your, your sort of outlets, as it were. Um, snail mail, I use snail mail a lot. I use greeting cards because, you know, when was the last time you got a greeting card at work? You know, you open it, right? Because it's so rare. So, you know, I've used text, um, you know, and in the summer, sometimes I'll use smoke signals. So, you know, whatever means of communication. But to your question, I think there's two ways you can go about it. You can be consistent and, you know, sort of two, three, four days apart with some logic in terms of what the flow is going to be. So you need to sit down and draw it out like any plan that you would. Um, the other, in, and, and you have to be really good at it, and I've only seen some people make it work, and I'll be the first to admit that I'm not good at it, is to get a real long narrative story. It's to draw out the story. And I know one person, she got to this one company through about, 30 to 40 voicemail messages, but she had this narrative and she had this style. But I think a lot of it had to do with her presentation and, and I couldn't pull it off because she's much more, uh, much more personable than I can be. Okay, so speaking of which, if the prospect gives a great response over a call, like neither interested nor completely denying it, how to pull him to my interest? Well, I think, first of all, you have to remember that if you're cold calling, which, again, you're going to do until you die, um, 
you know, you're interrupting somebody in the middle of their day, right? So you have to sort of accept the fact that that first reaction doesn't have anything to do with your message. It has to do with the fact that they want to get back to work. And so it's really a reaction to, holy shit, I got to get this stuff done. And this guy's talking in my ear. I don't need this. And that's what we hear over the phone is I don't need this, right? But the this in this case is the interruption, not the product. So I think, first of all, you have to go in understanding that often the first reaction, sometimes even the second, has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the environment that they're in. And it really is a conditioned response, right? You know, you do something enough times. Like, if you think about it, the average executive or even middle management person will get in excess of a thousand calls a year, right? So after a while, you become pretty good at shutting them down. So I think, again, you need to have some sort of continuum that you can continue along. This doesn't make sense from an English point of view, but you'll get it. So, you know, you have to have that lined up. But as to if you're good at weaving together a story in short bursts, try that. Otherwise, you know, polite persistence and so on. You know, and at one point you do, you know, I mean, I think there's politely, there's ways to politely ask, you know, is this conversation continuing to make sense to you or not? You know, people have the stupid thing of saying, well, you're going to buy, you're going to buy, what's the deal? You know, you can ask different ways. You can ask, you know, is this conversation continuing to make sense to you? Give him an opportunity to say no. Often salespeople corner a customer and they feel uncomfortable saying no. So ask them straight out, you know, like if this is not a priority anymore, it's probably not a good use of your time as a salesperson. And the only reason you want to continue to chase it is because you're too scared to prospect for the next one. Uh, what are the techniques to grab the attention of the prospects in the first 15 to 20 seconds while cold calling? Don't talk about yourself. Don't talk about your company. Don't talk about your product. Talk about what you think they want to be in in 12 months. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking to somebody and, and you sort of know the industry, and I'm assuming you would if you've been selling it, you know, what are some of the logical trends, logical objectives? What are you seeing from others? who are deemed to be leaders in a particular vertical doing that you know makes sense for other people. But it has to be really exclusively subject that's on their side of the fence. Anything that sort of sounds like you is going to really not be that interesting to them. So how do I prepare for cold calling the best possible way? Well, you start with a cold shower in the morning. No. Um, I think, you don't, you know, like you prepared for it as you would with any other professional endeavor, right? You practice, which is something a lot of salespeople don't do. More and more are, I think, and with, with some of the recording uh, technology out there, they can listen to themselves and so on. So, you know, practice is a big thing. I think talking to people. So, you know, like you asked me about the C-suite. So almost every company has its own C-suite. So if, for instance, and I'm just being, you know, for demonstration purposes, if you wanted to know what your chief finance, what a chief financial officer is thinking, go talk to your chief financial officer. He or she can't be all that different than every other, you know. So, you know, go out there and look at some association sites. You know, what are the associations talking about? Because on the association sites, they're going to be talking about things that they think their members see value in. Otherwise, they're not going to join up. Take a look at what some of the commercial trade shows are doing. You know, there's company after company that does vertically and almost functionally oriented trade shows. What are the topics that they're talking about? Because again, in order to attract paying customers to the trade show, they're going to have to talk about things that are of interest to those people. 
So once you have that prepared, then understand who in your client base you've been able to move the dial for in those directions, and then talk about that. But again, not about your product or whatever, but the dial that was moved and to what effect. Just with your like, they decided to do construction in the building today, but sorry. <laughs> Okay. Uh, the next question is, best way to respond to, how did you get my number? Well, in my youth, I used to say off the bathroom wall, but, you know, it didn't really work that well for me. So I think that there are a number of legitimate sources that people should be aware of that, you know, provide numbers. It's a business like anything else. I know people don't like it, but you know, it's a business like anything else. So, you know, for instance, up here in Canada, I use a service called Scott's Directory. It's a professional directory. It gives me access to I don't know, a couple of hundred thousand companies that I could prospect. Yeah. Um, so I tell them straight out, if I'm prospecting somebody in Canada, I'll tell them straight out that, you know, I uh, went to Scott's and I got it. But you know, the internet has changed. I don't get that question as much anymore. If I get it, they're usually older than me, and that's rare these days, um, because everybody expects that you know all the information is out there. I mean, you know, everybody that registered for this should expect that you know they're going to be crawled to their death. You know, so I don't think people ask that question. I really haven't been asked that question in five or six years, because again, my expectation is anywhere I go on the web, it's going to be tracked. So my expectation is that all these softwares that are scraping LinkedIn already gave out my phone number. So I think that somebody who, who asked that question is probably privileged because they haven't interacted with social media. Got it. The next question is how to handle objections in cold calling? Um, professionally, objections are part of the game, you know, so you're not surprised when you go to a restaurant if somebody asks you if you'd like a drink. So it's the same way that, you know, if you're going to make a cold call, you should expect, in fact, I would put my mortgage on it, that you're going to get an objection, right? So then you handle it professionally because it shouldn't surprise you. And you should be ready. You know, at the end of the day, there's only about five objections that you're going to get consistently. So if you know that 80% of the time you're going to get one of those five, I would say the odds are in your favor. Um, but I think what most salespeople do that doesn't help the situation is they try and defend their position. So they come in there with a story about their product. The client will say, oh, I'm not interested. The client will say, we already have that. And so now all of a sudden it's an invitation to defend the product, to defend the brand and so on. But again, as we spoke about before, if he's calling or he or she's calling a C-suite, that person is already past their contribution to that decision, right? They've set the strategic direction and so on. So if you're calling into the C-suite and you get an objection, then, you know, respond in a way that you would in a business conversation. And that's what's lacking in the success for a lot of salespeople is they'll call an executive, but they don't know how to talk to an executive. They want to talk product and the executive wants to talk strategy and they end up talking across each other. So, you know, I think if you want to handle an objection, understand why that person would want to talk to you and then focus on that. Instead of defending the product, it's perfectly understandable that a first impression after being interrupted by a phone call in the middle of a busy day, that they might say, you know what, I'm not sure I really want this, which is an invitation to expand on it instead of defending it. What do you mean you don't want it? I've heard salespeople, I listen in on calls and I ask people what they say, 
And, you know, when they hear I'm not interested, they actually ask, How do you, what do you mean you're not interested? I haven't said anything yet. It's the silliest thing a salesperson can say, but I hear them saying it. You know, I, get, I hear that more often than the question of where do you get my number? So I think you need to be professional. You need to expect it. And you need to think of it as an opportunity to expand the conversation. So I go back to what objectives I've been able to help people in that type of scenario achieve. And then it's no longer a discussion about me and my product. It's a discussion about that objective. And if that objective is not a highlight or, or a priority for him or her, I could pick one or two others, but I'm not going back and forth with them. And I'm not playing sort of let's defend the objection. I'm trying to, again, based on my experience, I know how I can help this prospect. I'm trying to find a way to align the conversation. It's not, again, just the way people ask the question of how do you handle objections? Like right away, it's like, you know, it's this Frankenstein thing. It's part of a conversation. And what your job is, is to change that interruption into a conversation. So don't think about his objections. Think about it as somebody saying, you know, well, tell me more. But again, I mean, not like blindly, but listen to what they're saying. You know, I'll give you an example. A lot of the larger companies that I call will tell me that they have a training department. Not a surprise, right? So instead of trying to go with this, that, or the other, I know from experience that one of the challenges that a lot of these learning and development areas have is getting adoption in the field. So when they tell me we're all set, we have our own people, you know, I say, I get that because, and I give them a reference that they could relate to a customer of mine or whatever, had the same view before they saw how my program actually increased adoption of internal programs. So now instead of fighting them about programs, I changed the discussion to, I've got something that'll help you increase internal adoption. That's why they invite me in. They could give a shit about my prospecting program at first, but once I get in, you know, we, I give them what they want. We have a conversation and we both get what we want out of it. But I didn't defend my program. I talked to issues that I know that they're dealing with. And again, that's that preparation and research that needs to be done for the cold call. It's not taking a cold shower. The next question is, how do you sell when there is no strong USP in your product when compared to your competitors? How do I sell or how do I see it being done? (laughs) How do you sell? I think you need to be convinced of your own value. I think that some of the people, um, you know, some people are afraid of their own value. They're afraid to quote the price, especially if they're on the upper end of that line. But, you know, I presented to somebody yesterday and they said, you know, you're a lot higher than anybody else that we've talked to. And I said, thank you. You know, like I'm worth it. And I'm not saying that out of conceit. I see a lot of my clients have great products and I see that they're able to help their customers. And while, the widget or the piece of equipment or whatever may not be that exotic or that interesting. When you look at it from the context of what it enables in their business, it has a lot of value. So if you focus again, you know, people who've heard me talk before, I talk a lot about leave your product in the car. Well, if you make it about the product and the product doesn't have much of a proposition, then you're going to be in trouble. But if I could shift that conversation as to what I could do for their business, again, It's not easy. They're not going to jump on it right away. But all of a sudden, I don't have to defend the product because now we're talking about, can I help you get to where you want to go? Again, that doesn't guarantee a sale, but it leads to a different conversation. Okay. And what are the best ways to end the call? By getting the appointment. (laughs) Um, I think, again, look, you want to be practical because... The wonderful thing is leads are recyclable, time isn't, right? 
So yeah. salespeople get hung up on chasing this thing just so they could prove that they got him, right? But then talk about the time that you wasted getting this guy you know, versus at the same time being invested in you know, other potential opportunities. Mm. You know, so to me, if you're gonna, if you're gonna fight to the end of the call, then yeah, you may win the call, but you're not gonna get much else. But if I try and sort of take away the objection two, three, maybe four times, and then I say something to the effect like, now it sounds like now is not the right time, I'll give you a call back in the future, then I leave that door open for coming back. But if I fight to the bitter end, then there's no future. So I think the best way to end the call, other than getting the appointment, is to make sure that you have an opportunity to come back uh, without being that guy who wouldn't let go. Next question. And by the way, just to add to that, everybody on this call has a story where they stayed in touch with somebody two, three, four years and they finally got the business. That's because, again, they left that door open. So I know sometimes people want to go for it because they want the deal. But remember, it's sort of a sudden death type of thing. You go for it, but you may not have the opportunity to come back. So, but the cure to all this, before we run out of time, is they wouldn't want to hang on to that questionable opportunity if they actually had other prospects that they could work on, right? So if you have plenty of, opportun if you have plenty of opportunities in your pipeline, you really could care less if one of them slips away. But if you only have two opportunities in your pipeline and one slips away, you're half empty. Yes. So the cure to a lot of your questions is pick up the phone and prospect. So how to overcome call reluctance? Call what? Reluctance. Reluctance. Yeah. On the part of the salesperson or the part of the manager? Salesperson. When he goes to the grocery store and he can't afford to buy food and his children are going hungry, you know, that might get him to think about picking up the phone and stop being so reluctant. You know, I think, look, at the end of the day, sales is not for everybody, right? And unfortunately, we're an industry that chews through a lot of bodies, right? We have a constant need. Almost every LinkedIn profile you go to says we're hiring, we're hiring, we're hiring, right? So, you know, I think that... Um, in terms of call reluctance, if somebody's not willing to do the job, then maybe they're in the wrong position. And, I, and I'm sorry, but like, I think the reality is that there's a lot of salespeople who really should be serving at McDonald's. So okay. that's the way to solve call reluctance is open up a Burger King or a McDonald's and send your SDRs over there. It really, I mean, at the end of the day, look, any other profession, right? If you were playing football and you refused to kick the ball, how long would you be on the team? Got it. It's, you know, I think that, yes, I understand that we're human and we have to be nice about it and so forth and so on. But again, you know, if you're not going to, you know, if you're not going to kick that ball and you're on the pitch, what do I need you for? Spot on. Next question is phone call or email, which is effective in prospecting? Both. Okay. Both. You know, why make a choice? I think about it as the expanding toolkit. You know, there's always this, this stuff. I remember when Sales 2.0 came out. What is the sales 2.0? And everybody said, oh, because we're using the tools. Well, notice I'm gray, I'm old. I've been using these tools for a long time. I remember when, you know, the Palm Pilot came out in the 90s, salesperson were the first ones to jump on it. So, you know, it's, to me, I think it's an over-focused over, over thing. Email, this, that, whatever, as I said earlier. To me, what I'm seeing and what I'm reading, and I would say I can validate from my own experience, is again, there's this balance of time that we talked about. So if you can pull together a combination of email, LinkedIn, phone, and snail mail, I think you've covered the 
broader space that you can. And in fact, I've seen stats that show that if you add social or chat, it actually takes away from the success as opposed to adding to it. Okay, the next question is, what's a good conversion percentage for cold telephone prospecting? What are your highest and lowest? So, you know, my numbers are 12, six and one. So for every 12 people I call, I generally speak to about six and I'll get an appointment. So I think if you convert that, it's somewhere in the range of about 14% or something like that, right? So that's contact to appointment. <clears throat> I've seen other people who have slightly better or slightly worse, but they all seem to congregate around this sort of contact to appointment. If I can connect with five people, I generally one appointment. I have somebody in the financial sector that I'm working with, they have a much stronger because again, people want money, so they're more willing to talk to them, right? Yeah. Whereas I have people who are in you know, the wireless trade where it's becoming more and more commoditized, not in a negative, but it's ubiquitous. So there it's, you know, their numbers are a little bit higher because they're churning through more people. But I find that sort of 14, that contact to appointment, that 14%, and an and appointment doesn't have to be face-to-face. -face. It could be a web meeting. It could be a phone call. It's just the person's committing to listen to you for that segment of time. Um, okay. About that 14% or so is what I've seen. Okay. This is a follow-up to that question. So which mm. industries have what conversion rates? You know, um, I could send you and, and, and you can send it on to the people uh, because I was just doing some work with a uh, marketing company on that. Sure. And as I recall, I mean, I know that tech was in and around 8% conversion rate leads to opportunities, right? Okay. Um, there were a couple that were lower and I think there were more industrial and transportation things that probably erroneously people might consider to be commodities, but um, I can look it up and send it to you because they had a whole chart on it. So it's just behind the screen here and I don't want to go away, but um, there wasn't any that stood out that much further. As I recall, I think the research we were looking at, we were thinking that the numbers were actually lower than, than what we anticipated. We thought that would convert at a higher rate. Got it. The next question is how to develop a winning sales strategy. How to develop a winning sales strategy. I don't know. Can we solve world hunger first? <laughs> um, so I think much of that depends who you are, right? Because I think if you're a salesperson, the word strategy becomes a bit big, right? Because you need to strategize around your territory and your customers and all that. But a lot of things have been satisfied i mean you know defined as it were <clears throat> so i think what i would look at it is say okay so how's the decision made you know like there's the embryonic g thought you know that that notion of you know on the back of a napkin on the 19th hole of a golf course somebody had an idea and they take it back to the company some of the people in the company noodle around look at it and then all of a sudden it sort of makes its way down that decision path until they're finally selecting a vendor so i think that the way that I would formulate a strategy is to try and understand how I could plug in at each of the stages along the way. So what are the different messages because of the different timing or the different messages? Because again, as we talked about earlier, an executive is going to be looking 18 months out, whereas a frontline sales manager, maybe will be looking six months out as it were. Um, so I think really a winning strategy is a series of connected strategies based on who you're selling to. But I always go back to the one thing is that 
what would this person consider to be a success if we met six months, you know, after the fact? And, you know, I've had different people tell me different things. I had one VP tell me, as long as I don't get fired, I'm good, right? So that's an easy thing to satisfy, right? But I've had others, you know. So I think a winning sales strategy is really understanding who the key players are likely to be in your decision, which means having to review previous decisions, and then create a slice for each of those. And, and it's the combination of those that I think leads to a broader strategy. But again, I think the big strategy is something that, I don't want to say it should be left to the other people, but at the end of the day, the job of a frontline salesperson is to execute. And, you know, there's a lot of variance and a lot of style and a lot of personal, you know, God-given skills that I could bring to that. But at the end of the day, I really don't have to worry about where my brand is in the market because that's been decided. And I find too many salespeople, you know, pitter-patter and do things that take away from what they're supposed to be doing. And I guess that's an element of call reluctance. Mm -hmm. Like, as a wireless uh, manager once told me that he finds it fascinating that there's always a battery that needs to be driven across town just when it's time to prospect. Got it. Next question is, what is a no-go at performing cold calls? Well, swearing, you know, most days I get away with it. Um, you know, I think, again, you have to remember that we're interrupting them. And this is a big thing. I tell people, remember that, you know, like some somebody asks you what you do for a living, tell them that you're a professional interrupter, right? Because I think unless you accept that, you're going to be always behind the eight ball. So given that you're interrupting somebody, think about what you react like when you're being interrupted and what would help you meld into the call or what would offend you and just make you that much more, you know, not willing to be part of the call. Um, I think talking negatively about any competition, whether it's my competition or their competition or anything like that is clearly off bounds. Um, you know, Anything you wouldn't do to your grandmother, you shouldn't do to a prospect. Got it. And the next question is, how much time does one spend in prospect research versus on calls? So here I'm going to be a bit different than most people I've seen. I think people spend way too much time on research. Because mm -hmm. two reasons. And, you know, people can get into it. I'm sure they'll give out my contact number. I'll take on all comers. Um, you know, the tendency among human beings and salespeople are human beings, contrary to rumors, um, is we want to demonstrate what we've accomplished, right? So if I go out there and I do research on a half hour on you and your, uh, and your company, when I get you on the line, I'm going to want to show you that I did all that research, right? Mm -hmm. Which means I'm going to talk about stuff that has nothing to do with getting the appointment, right? So if I know nothing other than what, how I can help you move that dial. Remember earlier we talked about, I want to move yeah. the dial in your favor. If that's all I know, then that's all I could talk about, which means that's what the call will be about. But as soon as I start reading the president's letter and this and this and that, and da, 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 I'm going to start talking about all this stuff that is not getting me closer to an appointment. Now, I don't want people to be jumping up and down. I'm sure somebody's doing it somewhere that I'm not suggesting go in there stupid, right? You know, but there's general things about the industry that you need to know. There's general things about that company that you need to know. But I don't need to know their kids' names, you know, and I don't need to know their birthdays. And I don't need to know their favorite flavor of ice cream, you know. Like, I'll get to know that as we evolve the relationship, right? At this point, my goal is to have you commit to having a conversation with me, right? Yeah. Once you commit to that conversation, yeah, I need to do that research. But if you consider the numbers I shared with you earlier, 12, 6, and 1, yeah. 
if I did 20 minutes of research on every single company, so what's 12 times 20 minutes, 240 or whatever, I'd be spending five or six hours doing research to get one appointment, right? Yeah. And then I ask myself, how much is an hour of my time worth? I could buy that appointment cheaper, right? So save the research for when you have a need to do it. But all you're going to do, first of all, if you're going to call up and, they're gonna inter and, and you're interrupting them and they're going to object, which is just reflex, has nothing to do with you, right? Right away, all that research goes out the window because you got to sit there and talk about there, right? Yeah. So let's say you don't do what I say, which is fight with the client, but you start talking to them and you start putting all the research that you did. Well, they know all that, right? Because they put it out there on the internet. So you're not delivering anything new to them. All you're communicating to them is they have the ability to click a mouse and read what's on the screen, right? Now, if you can put all that together and come up with something that relates to an objective, then your research can go to that. But again, I don't think you're going to get that from that website. You're going to get it from your own knowledge, your own subject matter expertise, the other customers that you've sold to, the other customers who consider you to be a valued vendor, a valued advisor. So if I know why my customers are buying from me, what I've been able to help them with, I think that's what they should focus on. The next question is by Steven. He's, he has asked, can you show us a 90-day plan that we can use to become you? I show all my customers that and that customers. But I think rather than sort of being stuck on a 90-day plan, I think the first thing that people should do is really understand how long their sales cycle is. And I think that they should formulate these plans along these cycles. The other, which I think, again, is, is similar to the research, and I understand where the question is coming from, but, you know, I know it's simple, but if you just look at it, that if I put a new opportunity into my pipeline every day, right, then that means I have every, something to work on. And regardless of what my sales cycle is, I'm going to have something coming out at the other end, right? So I think for the 90-day plan, I think I wouldn't base it around days. I would base it around my cycles. So how long is my sales cycle? How long am I in what's commonly called discovery phase? How long does it take me from discovery to get to a proposal, to get to a commitment and whatever has to happen between, you know, the proposal and that commitment. And I think I would put the plan that would be one. Then I would go to the marketplace and again, they can comb through my blog and the tool is somewhere in there, but they can go to what we call the opportunity matrix. And that's looking at a number of different factors that will help you divide your marketplace into various tiers again, based on, that company specifics. And then from there, you just hit the ground. But I think you need to do the work up front. And I would, again, I understand the appeal of this sort of 90-day concept, but I would really more base it on your sales cycle. Like when people ask me when they'll see the difference as a result of the work that I do with their teams, I generally tell them that it'll be into the second cycle. So whatever their sales cycle is, the stuff that I do will begin to bubble up in the second one. So I would do it th that way. I would look at really what my cycle is, prioritize who's likely to buy at a higher value, who's likely to buy maybe with lesser value, who's going to, you know, not as likely to buy, but if they buy, it's going to be big, and then begin to apportion your time that way. But a lot of the rest comes down to what you're selling, who you're selling to, territory, and things like that. So if they're serious, I would invite them to get in touch with me offline. Sure. And uh, the next question is, what is your philosophy when it comes to a career in sales? My philosophy to a career in sales? Avoid it like the plague, man. 
no, just kidding. Um, I think you have to, I don't know. I'm trying to find my politically correct dictionary. Um, I think you have to look at it as a career. You know, let's face it, a lot of people who come into sales are really transients. You know, they come in, you know, they sniff around, they use it to climb up the ladder, especially, you know, in growing industries where turnover is, you know. And, you know, three, four years later, only a handful are still in sales and their careers have progressed. And that doesn't necessarily mean hierarchically, but just they've rounded out as salespeople. And I think a lot of people think that sales is easy because there's a lot of good salespeople out there who make it look easy, but there's a reason that the 80-20 rule exists. Mm -hmm. So I would ask them if they're prepared to do it as a career as opposed to something that, you know, I, I've seen scenarios where people took on a sales job so they can get into the company and then they move to marketing or product or what have you. Did you start in sales? Huh. No. no? Um, so, uh, you know, so I think the idea is to really understand that it's a career that they commit to. So if you think about a good salesperson, right, we make probably as good as good lawyers and good doctors, right? So think about what it takes to become a good lawyer and doctor. It takes years and years of education, this, yeah. that. It's not just charming, good looks, and a little bit of luck. You know, if you look at the best salespeople over time, they're the ones who really put that practice to work, you know, come back over and over and over and take their bruises and so on. So I think that if you really are looking at it as a career, which is the word I'm focusing on in your question, yeah. right, then you have to look at it as though you were looking at a career in engineering. You know, most professional endeavors have annual, you know, continuing education credit requirements, not sales. You know, you can be as bad as you were yesterday without anybody caring about that, right? So I think we as a whole, as an industry, need to pick that up. And we're beginning to do that here in Canada. And I know that there's been steps in the States to make it a more formal education and profession and so on. But I'm still not aware of an MBA in sales that's being offered anywhere. So right away, when we show up at the door, the marketing person has an advantage because there are MBAs in marketing, right? Yeah. So... You know, I think they should really think about, am I ready for this career? Because it takes the same level of commitment. They're not going to make money year one. They may, because every blind squirrel walks into a nut sometimes. But, you know, if they're really serious about it, the payoff's going to be a couple of years in. But if they invest those years right, that payoff will continue and it'll grow. So they but we managed to shake out most people in those first two years. But who do you follow and look up to in sales? In sales, I'm glad you put that in there. <laughs> I would have gone in a different direction. You know, I, I mentioned Stu. I like Stu because I think he's genuine. So when I read his stuff, I, I really enjoy it. Um, you know, oddly enough, there's a lot of people in sales I respect, but I find there's only so many ways you can spin the wheel, right? So, and I include myself in this. You know, I've been blogging for 12, 13 years probably more. And, you know, I know that sometimes I'm just presenting the same idea in a different way, but hopefully in a way that maybe somebody will pick up on it before. But, you know, what I tend to look to is people in other functions, and I try and find parallels between that and sales. So I listen to different pods about human behavior or different pods about, you know, different relationship elements between people, not to do with sales at all, 
but you know, um, this one that I'm trying to remember where I was reading and the guy talked about this book and I found that there were a lot of parallels in that bringing it into sales. So I think it's by design, but lately, first of all, I get like a book every other week that people want me to review and candidly, they're beginning to sound the same, including mine. Um, so I find that I'm going to other practices and listening to other podcasts. Um, Adam Grant has one that Ted puts on um, work life that has some great stuff because again, the principles I think apply to sales as well. It's just nobody is presented it that way. Um, you know, and then again, the circle of people that, that I'm with, you know, people like Mike Kunkel, I find to be very informative. Um, some of the people that you've had, you know, whether it's Jeb, um, you mentioned Nancy Narden before we started talking. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of those people, you know, continue to be part of the uh, part of the people that I look to. Um, I think you might be aware I did that prospecting Unbound Summit. So I met some new people there. You know, Jason Jordan would be another one that I look to because, again, I just find I find their look at sales as refreshing, even though it's well experienced, if you know what I mean. So, mm -hmm. And then, you know, I always go to my wife for good advice. <laughs> That's so sweet of you. Uh, one last question, Thibault, before we end this webinar. So uh, what is that one key takeaway that you want to give it to our audience today? Other than my phone number? Um, the, I think the key takeaway is, again, that ultimately it's about the business. So it's hard for people, and I know the salespeople hear this a lot and so on, but it really isn't about your product. Yes, your product is great and it's wonderful and your CEO is like a sage, you know, he came from God directly down to earth. All that is great. But that's not important to the customer. The customer is thinking about what can I do to move my business forward? Now, for some of them, that will mean plugging a hole in the dike and dealing with a problem right now. And for others who are cruising and doing good, they're trying to see how I can accelerate it. And so I think the key takeaway is forget yourself, leave your product in the car and go in there with a blank you know, canvas, you know, some colors and brushes and see what you can paint up with that client. And each painting will be different because your partner in it is different. But if you go in there with a the picture already pre-painted, then your fate is already pre-painted. So is there anything else you would like to add apart from the questions that we discussed? No, I mean, I think, you know, the, 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 uh, the goal should be to have fun. I think this is one of those rare opportunities where you can actually have fun, make money and control your own income and time. So there's a lot of other professions that you can make money in, but they come with some luggage and restrictions. And I think if you're a good salesperson, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of freedom and a lot of rewards. So, you know, but like any profession, it takes application. And a lot of salespeople, you know, are reluctant to apply. Just like they're reluctant to pick up the phone. Cool. Uh, Tibor, uh, the webinar was super insightful and funny. I totally loved it. I totally loved hosting on our hosting you on our webinar today. Thank, Thank you, Tibor, for doing this webinar with us. We'll keep this connection going. Stay tuned to our weekly upcoming episode with more sales and marketing leaders from around the globe. We are on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and more. Subscribe to get notified when a new episode is out. Also, please leave us a review if you're on Apple. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.